Welcome to season two of the Love Good Podcast, where you learn how to love what is good so you can become what you love and change the world. This podcast is brought to you by our patrons, a community of intentional consumers who curate music and books based on the transcendentals of beauty, truth, and goodness. Join us each week as we sit down with artists and thought leaders to chat about media, culture, and what it means to be human. We're so happy you're here. Everybody, welcome to the Love Good Podcast. This is your host, Jimmy Mitchell. Uh, yep, that is my way of announcing that uh, today's episode is going to feel a little bit early and uh, maybe even a little bit premature for folks who are not quite ready to sing Christmas music. I know we're still a few months away, but this is actually the month in which all new Christmas music, all new holiday music releases. And today we had the great privilege, I had the great joy of sitting down with an old friend, Matt Marr. We met about 11 years ago when I was at the time working or doing an internship with a really amazing youth organization called Life Teen based out of Phoenix, Arizona, where Matt is not quite originally from. He's originally from Canada. Uh, He lived in Phoenix for a long time. He's now in Nashville, Tennessee, of course. But it was about two years after that that I did some brief tour management for Matt, and I've been just super inspired by his career as it's been unfolding at a distance uh, ever since. And this is uh, his first Christmas album, an incredible, incredible collection of classics as well as originals. And we're going to talk about some of those songs specifically, but also just themes of hope and family and nostalgia, even how uh, beauty has a way of causing pain. You know, like beauty has a way of reminding us of how things should be. And that's so much of what Christmas uh, does for a lot of people as well. So anyways, I have a, as always, super special and exciting announcement at the end of this episode where you can learn how you can not only get Matt's Christmas album, but even a brand new Christmas book that he's released. You can get it absolutely for free. It will involve becoming a love good patron. And by the way, we are well on our way in this race to a thousand, but more than ever, we need your help. We need you to invest in this community of artists. And at the end of the show, I'm going to tell you how you can do it actually with very little skin off your back. You guys are amazing. Sit tight. I'll be back in just a few moments with Matt Moore. Welcome back to the Love Good Podcast, everybody. This is your host, Jimmy Mitchell, feeling super privileged right now to be sitting down with somebody I've loved and respected for a long time, known for just over 10 years, the one and only Matt Marr. How you doing, Matt? I'm doing great. Uh, thanks for being a part of the show. Thanks. This is the fancy setup you got. It's pretty fun. Uh, this used to be, I'm embarrassed to admit, an asbestos-infested basement where uh, you just didn't want to come within a 
you know, probably 50 foot radius. Really? You, you, you got, you built all this? Uh, I have had some really good friends who have enjoyed the space for free uh, as they built it themselves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> work for hire. Trade will work for uh, soundproofing. Yeah. We've had some interesting people in here. I mean, all the way back to like maybe in the second year of this being finished, Dirk Bentley just sort of showed up one day because he had to record some vocal tracks and the guy who was renting it out at the time was really good friends with Dirks. So that wow. was fun, you know, but we've never had Matt Moore in here. This is a privilege. This is a privilege. Oh man. So I obviously am super excited about your Christmas album and just continue to be um, really inspired by all that you're doing. But before we dig into that, most people probably wouldn't know that we would have met about 11 years ago. I don't think you were even yet living in Nashville at the time, were you? No, 2007, I had bought a house at the worst possible time in American real estate history. <laughs> so I was I was reveling in my home ownership. And 2007 was when I was still living in Phoenix, traveling in and out of Phoenix, had a, had a band. There was myself and three other guys, and we were mostly flying everywhere. Mm. We weren't busing or on, in a van. We were flying, playing a lot of youth events. And I was still on part-time as a music minister at a, at a Catholic parish in Mesa, Arizona, living in Tempe, and had signed a record deal with Sony Music, Provident Label Group. And in 2007, was probably in the process of making that first record, which is called Empty and Beautiful. Yeah, I, I remember being with you in Chicago that fall when you did your photo shoot. I think on the top of a building. I don't uh -huh. know how, how tall. You got like a fear of height by chance. Or, I don't, but yeah. that was in uh, yeah, I was in Chicago. Yeah, that's crazy. It really has been quite a ride, and and to watch the, you know, the creativity, but even the career around the last eleven years unfold has been really, really cool. Really, really cool. I'm curious, what do you miss most about those days? I'm sure they felt a lot simpler, even though they were crazy at the time. One look at your Instagram feed would indicate that, you know, you're still moving at, at a pretty fast clip. A lot of creativity, a lot of travel, a lot of energy, family. You're married mm. with three kids. Yes. So what do you miss most about life 11 years ago? Sleep. Just as you're, yeah, there you go. I miss sleep. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I miss, uh, jo I jokingly say I miss sleep. I don't, I don't know if I miss anything because I think what has been laid down has made me a better man. So all of the things that I had as a single guy 10 years ago, I look at them now and see that those things were probably all hindrances to me stepping into who I believe God had designed me to be. Mm. And now embracing them in marriage and in fatherhood, I find that I'm much more grounded now than I've ever been in my life. You know, the one thing I'll say, and I always, it's funny, I always say this to everyone who's not married, doesn't have kids, the one thing you have is time. You know, everybody wakes up, you and I wake up, and we have the same amount of time as Bill Gates does. He's like the one of the, he's like practically the richest guy in the earth. Jeff Bezos, you know, like, Al, you know, Jack Ma, the president of Alibaba. We all have the same 24 hours. And, but when you, as you grow and as you grow older and as you take on different responsibilities in life, more and more of that time is automatically predisposed or assigned to specific tasks. A lot of them involve other people. Mm. 
particularly when you're married and when you have when you decide to create other human beings <laughs> and, and begin the audacious task of of trying to be a mirror for them or raise them up as they say so that so then automatically you wake up and you're like just that's time time that time is gone i can't get it back now in my day and when you have a career and you're an artist who tours for a living that takes up a certain amount of time because it takes time to keep those relationships going it takes time to keep that investment running properly and smoothly and effectively and that's time it's just time away from other things and when you're younger you can waste your time however you want none of it's time wasted mm. it's all invested now mm. the question is are you making a good investment or a bad investment mm. and it's a drag that typically you can only figure out when you look back yeah it's really hard to make sense of it in the middle of it mm. so when I look back on it, if I miss anything, and up until recently, I had missed being part of a community where you're just sort of taken for granted. Hmm. Because I think this is more so on the on the you know, the music ministry side of things. When you're writing songs for congregational use or you're writing music that's inspired by the liturgy or you know, you're writing predominantly a lot of worship music. Being part of some kind of local, nameless, faceless, celebrity-less expression is actually really, really healthy and really, really important. Mm -hmm. Like it's, and for me, that's what I had when I came back to. I would travel around when I came back to Phoenix. It's like, oh, it's just Matt. Like it's, it's not a big deal. You know what I mean? And fast forward ten years later, and you know, I just played in Phoenix a couple of weeks ago at a non-denominational church and there was this meet and greet before and all these people came that were at my parish and they're like, you sang at my wedding mm. or you sang at my child's baptism or you sang at my dad's funeral mm. and I can't thank you so much. So it's interesting you're asking me that question because I, I, as of a month ago, I started playing music at a mass once a month. There's a group of us who are rotating. There's a lot of traveling musicians who happen to be Catholic now in Nashville. And so all of us are kind of taking turns playing music at a liturgy for families and young people at uh, the parish that we're involved in, St. Joseph's out in Madison. And there's, you know, there's no advertising or something like who's going to play because that's not the point. But the point of it for me was, well, I have kids now. So like I had this moment last Sunday where I was singing the song during the offertory and my son was bringing up the wine that was going to become the precious blood. And I, 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 I started crying while I'm singing mm -hmm. because it was this realization of like, oh, yeah, this is what it means to be part of something that has eternal ramifications, you know? Mm -hmm. So I miss that. I miss being part of stuff like that. But I don't miss it because now I get to be part of it again. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's amazing. Yeah, I think you know when you're when you're sort of like ascending and you're kind of trying to make a name for yourself and you're building, you might you might forget about the importance of stuff like that, but there's nothing like having three kids to remind you like, okay, coffee breaks over. <laughs> time to roll up your sleeves and get, you know, and my my wife is writing a book 
children's book on shame hmm. for middle school students. She spoke at the youth group at Our Lady of the Lake in Hendersonville. And so I went with her and sang a song. And it was like flashbacks of like being in a living room leading praise and worship music at a Bible study for, you know, 25 teenagers, you know. But yeah, yeah I, I don't know. That's the stuff. If there's anything I miss, it's that. Mm. It's being part of stuff like that. Because I feel like that that's the stuff that's most meaningful. Yeah. There's two amazing threads there. They really jump out at me is, you know, humility and, and freedom. So this this humility of being rooted, grounded in a place with a particular people where you don't necessarily have a name or a reputation, but people who just treat you like their own. You know, there's a few families here in Nashville that have become like family to me. There's just a constant grounding, anchoring effect there. So just the importance of humility and the joy that actually comes with it. But the thing that really stood out to me is freedom. You probably wouldn't say you have less freedom now than you did 11 years ago, but most people would think, okay, uh, he's got a lot more going on, a lot more responsibilities. That looks like a lot less freedom. But I can see it even in the way that you're, you're talking about these things. There's, there's a joy, there's an integrity, and there's a freedom in the midst of it all, though I'm sure the, the pressure, even the stress can be great sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it... You know, and anxiety, anxiety is a big thing these days. And a lot of us don't even necessarily know we're carrying it because it's real subversive. Anxiety, anxiousness was so prevalent enough that 2,000 years ago, Jesus felt the need to address it. Hmm. I remember having this conversation once with, uh, I will leave his name out, but a, uh, a worship leader who's a songwriter and said, I said to him, I said, we don't have, why is it there's not a lot of songs written that quote the things that Jesus said. He's his answer was, well, he didn't say that much. <laughs> and I just always thought that that was a really interesting answer because to me, I think he the things that Jesus said were I think they make you they're uncomfortable and they're hard because they're not easily repeatable as like sentimental platitudes. Mm. They're things you have to wrestle with. That's right. And he spoke a lot. I mean, he dedicated a whole part in the Gospel of Matthew of talking about worry mm. and asking the question, why? Mm. Why, why, why worry? Yeah. So for me, as responsibilities have come and sort of the realization of like, you don't, most people don't set out to try to be well-known or build notoriety. Mm -hmm. And if they do, they're probably a sociopath. <laughs> like clinically diagnosable. <laughs> and, but I remember having this conversation with a friend of mine who's like a mentor, and you know, I'm Tom Booth. And we, you know, Jesus, he was telling me how, you know, Jesus says, seek and you will find. And I love how open-ended that is mm. in the sense of saying like, if you really want something, chances are you can probably get it. You might have to completely betray everything that you believe in mm. to get it if you want it on your schedule, on your terms. <laughs> but you can get it if that's what you want. <laughs> What's it going to cost you? Yeah. So so for me, in this season of life, anxiety has been something that I realized I've, I've needed to kind of like, not nip in the bud or like, well, we need to solve this problem. Uh, it's just more so of learning how to identify from a spiritual level of saying, okay, God, this is here. Mm. 
and not forgetting and its existence, the existence of anxiety does not somehow prove or disprove God's love for me. That's right. That doesn't change. Mm. So then say, okay, well, what, you know, what do you think of this? Yeah. And uh, what do I think of it? Where do I think it's coming from? Mm. And then can we go to that and stop and, and then pray? That's right. You know, the Pope asked everyone to pray the rosary for the month of October. So October 1st came and I just started praying it again. Mm. And I was freaked out by how much peace flooded into my heart. Like tangible. Like the kind where I was like, uh, do I have low blood pressure all of a sudden? Like literally I felt, <laughs> I, I, you know, and I, I, my conversion came through the charismatic renewal. I mean, this is why like I'm, you know, attracted to charismatic Christianity still. And, and I have a kinship with like folks from that, you know, kind of tribe. And it was, yeah, it was like this tangible thing of like, okay, now I understand why this simple devotion that's got re repetition and it's got, there's a, there's a physical aspect to it. I understand why it's still around mm -hmm. and so heavily promoted and endorsed and used yeah. hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later mm. because it really, it can work. That's right. It was about two years ago I would ask that question of just about every young person I'd meet. Every now and then it would be like appropriate even in a large gathering to just say, hey, how many of you feel at peace even more than half the time? And it was shocking. I would say most, the vast majority were sitting in like less than 20, 30% of their day where they actually felt peaceful there was that freedom, that that happiness. That's really sad. And I think it is sort of indicative of something on a cultural level. I don't know if you would have any analysis of that, but what is it that causes that level of widespread anxiety amongst young people, uh, amongst uh, those of us who should be far beyond, you know, anxiety and nerve? Like I, I would think that actually at the age of 32, I'd have more freedom, more confidence, um, ideally more humility. Uh, but sometimes I feel like I'm just really good at covering up the insecurities I've had since middle school. You know, like what's what's not changing? I think it's a pretty complex combination of factors. And I say all this and also say, hell if I know. <laughs> but, but I think that for the first time in human history, we are carrying around, I know this is something you talk about a lot, we're carrying around supercomputers that are basically generally informing us of all the malaise that it currently exists in the world. Hmm. And unfortunately, it's easier to get someone to read bad news than it is to get someone to read good news. Which means that's what's constantly it's, marketed. It's physiologically right. easier. Yeah to get someone to read bad news than it is good news. It's mm -hmm. physiologically easier. So those emotions, the responses from your adrenal gland, sort of the, the quick fuse of adrenaline, the fight or flight responses that happen in your sympathetic and paranerv parasympathetic nervous system, mm -hmm. all of the physiological effects, because it's instinctually built in who we are as human beings, mm -hmm. because those are things that we need for survival. That's right. So <laughs> we're basically now... So baseline level, you know, you turn on, you open up a device, it's some statistical proportional mix of bad news, 
and good news in the form of something funny or something cute. Mm. Um, and those are great, but typically those aren't enough to combat the anxiety that the bad news creates. Yeah. Because it could be about someone else or something else that happened halfway around the world, mm. but it causes you to remember your own anxiety that you have about something that's very personal. Mm. And the problem is, is that it's, and it's not about solutions. It's just that what happens is, is it's this endless cycle. You're, you're stuck in an endless feedback loop of suffering and shame sometimes. And what breaks that is empathy. Mm. It feels like more than ever before, in some ways, what we're suffering from right now is a total lack of empathy. Hmm. or in an, an inability to empathize. To even come outside of ourselves. To come outside of ourselves. Yeah, yeah because in order for you to empathize with someone, the, the hierarchy of suffering, it has to cease within you because you have to stop and recognize someone else for who they are and where they are and not try to fix it or categorize it or put it in a neat box and put it up on a shelf and say, oh, you're that. That's right. You have to stop and wrestle and kind of sit in the tension of whatever it is that they're going through. Mm -hmm. Because, And I think that ultimately that's from what I've realized in the journey, not making this Christmas record, really making the last record echoes was learning how Jesus, the way of the cross is, is, the, is a way of empathy because it's Jesus taking on all of our suffering and shame and coming alongside us. Mm. And then also eradicating it by dying, eradicating sin by his death. But more than that, on a human level, he comes to empathize with everyone mm. and, and walk alongs people in the midst of their suffering. That's right. I think when you realize that Christ did that for you and you find freedom in that, and by no stretch of the imagination, by the way, am I at peace? <laughs> More than half the day. I mean, <laughs> I, my goodness, I hope I am. But at the same time, waking up and your four-year-old has somehow occupied all of the bed and you and your wife are both sleeping on a postage stamp on either side, <laughs> you're not feeling a ton of peace in that moment. But I would say that I'm, I'm, I'm becoming more and more aware of how readily available the peace that Jesus promises is available to me. Mm. And when I choose to be grounded and rooted in that it it frees me up to have empathy for other people that's right i love that word freedom because i think in some ways if we choose to depend on god it makes us free of the entire universe in a sense but as soon as we decide we want to be free not in the lord but but from him we become a slave to all of life circumstances yeah you know? i mean everything's a gift that's right. Everything's a gift. Faith is a gift. Salvation's a gift. Mm. The the breath you're breathing is a gift. You know, it's all it's all gift. And then you get to the real crazy place when you start looking at saints and mystics and and you ask questions of like, were these people all together socially, mm. or were some of them like slightly crazy? Mm. But that actually starts to make more sense, right? You know, because then you start to say, well. That doesn't matter. History has more people who have made an impact in spite of their in, infirmities. 
Or in because because they had them like right. it it those infirmities weren't weaknesses that they, they were they ended up being like a um, a well that they could draw from mm-hmm. and uh, great story Charlotte Elliott is the hymn writer she wrote the hymn Just as I Am Just as I Am without one plea was written by a woman in an existential crisis so you have a believer who's like caught in a deep existential crisis of faith. And she is living in Brighton, England, and basically house confined to a daybed. She can't move. She can't She can't really do anything. She. I, I wonder if she had chronic fatigue syndrome or something. And in a deep moment of despair, wrote a, a poem based on things she knew were true. It wasn't things she was feeling. It's things she knew were true. And that's the poem that inspired the hymn that became the theme song for every Billy Graham <laughs> yeah. crusade ever. Yeah. That's a great example of someone, of a strong believer, strong because of their weakness. Like God yeah. somehow uses their weakness mm-hmm. in a redemptive way. And that, that that's kind of what I'm talking about. That, you know, God using broken but beautiful men and women in the midst of their infirmities and doubts and vulnerabilities to further along develop the kingdom. That's right. And it seems like really you're... You're actually getting to the very heart of the gospel, that all that strength comes out of weakness. Redemption only comes out of suffering. So I'm curious, you know, we have a lot of listeners who are constantly trying to just simply engage with people's humanity. They've got family, they've got friends who wouldn't be believers, who are trying to find that common ground by way of beauty. Sometimes it is by way of truth. But what is it? What does it look like, especially as we're approaching the Christmas season, the release of this album is only a few days away. There is something kind of magical about this time of the year for everybody. Mm. Not everybody. I suppose people who have lost loved ones, this always becomes a really tough, really, really tough stretch. But what is it then about this crazy mystery of God becoming a baby that even inspires, you know, Oprah Winfrey to rally behind an animated film a year ago. Every artist who's ever lived at some point in their career puts out a Christmas album or four or six in the case of, you know, Amy Grant or whatever. I'm just curious, why was it uh, finally the right time for you? And what do you think Christmas has to say to this, you know, this culture of anxiety, this this culture of of suspicion and distrust that we even see on a political scale? I mean, it's sort of a a top-down anxiety, bottom-up anxiety that I think Christmas can speak into. But how do you hope that happens through your music, through this album? Well, usually it's things that mean something to us that expose our wounds. So things that are near and dear to us, when somebody references them, I mean, that's, you know, when they say something triggers you, mm-hmm. that's what they're saying. They're saying, look, this this means something to me. This is important to who I am. And you talking about it in any way, shape, or form, it strikes a chord. Yeah. And for some people, either that chord evokes a warmness, a sense of fulfillment, a sense of... Um, Wonder and awe, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for other people, it's a painful reminder mm. of a moment where those things couldn't be true anymore for wow. them. yeah. For whatever reason. Yeah. So I would say more than any other holiday, Christmas is the one time of year where we literally take as much of the past <laughs> as we can carry and we bring it with us into the present moment. Yeah. And we end up holding the present moment hostage Hmm. to 
what our memory of the past is, whether it's good or bad. And so, you know, some people have idealized, everyone, I mean, a lot of people do have idealized notions of what Christmas is, and they, they have those memories of the past when there is a sense of innocence and there is a sense of wonder and there's a sense of mystery and a sense of awe. Hmm. And this time of year comes back around again. They're like, I just want that. Yeah. I want that again. Yeah. And all the stuff that we do, it reminds us of that, you know, and it's not bad. I mean, this whole, you know, you talk about politics, this whole thing, you know, Christmas is coming and it's like an argony tell, like it, this whole notion of a war on Christmas, it's the dumbest idea I've ever heard of. <laughs> How can you say it's a war? It's literally the word Christ is in the title. Hmm. Even if you say happy holidays, everyone knows what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. If someone has a wound because they've been hurt by church or by a loved one, and for them the word Christmas is a difficult word, that's perfectly reasonable hmm. and acceptable. Hmm. And guess what? It doesn't change what the holiday is about. Hmm. It doesn't change the fact that God became a baby. It can't. You can't change the past. Mm. I mean, that's the big lesson with Christmas for everyone. You can't change your past. And guess what? You can't change the past of what happened 2,000 years ago. Mm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. The past is what's done is done. Mm. And in the celebration of the Advent season and Christmas season, we're reminded that God embraced all of humanity and all that humanity had to offer. So Jesus comes and embraces the best of us and the worst of us. Mm. To me, that's the kind of Christmas I want to celebrate is, mm. out, is the idea that the season of Advent is four weeks. And, you know, I, I learned a lot in the making this record. I realized that Lutherans were the ones who invented the Advent wreath. I know that either. It's crazy. In the 16th century. And the reason they did was... Because there were, I guess, Germanic tribes that the evergreen tree to them symbolized eternal life hmm. or new life because they stayed green during the winter, which makes sense. Hmm. You know, it's like, why would you cut down a tree? I don't know. Somehow the leaves stay on it. It must be, it's an immortal tree. And so they would take, then they would bend the branches into a circle, which symbolized infinity. Yeah. Anyways, the, the four weeks got dead. You know, the original concept of it was a week dedicated to hope, a week dedicated to peace, a week dedicated to joy, a week dedicated to love. So even in the Catholic Church, you know, the third Sunday of Advent's Gaudete Sunday, which is, it's the Sunday dedicated to joy. And the other two before it and the fourth Sunday also had themes associated with it. And that, to me, with the making of this record, it really was about a couple things. It was about, as a parent now and having young kids, we just started asking the question of like, how do we get our kids ready for Christmas? How do we choose to tell the story? It's it's such a redemptive story. It's such a beautiful story. It's such a hope-filled story. There's the so much of the human condition is in the story of Christmas and and at the same time, how do we talk to our kids about Jesus coming and the fulfillment of all things? And that's why the, you know we celebrate Christmas now because the days are shorter than they can ever be, and mm. the, and it's darker than it can than any other time of the year. At least 
you know, where we live. And this is why we celebrate Christmas now, because this is where the light of the world comes into the world at the darkest time. Mm. The idea of making a record called The Advent of Christmas had been in my head for about four or five years. And I'd made a couple of songs here and there for different Christmas compilations, but I'd never made a record. And I do think in some ways it was with the passing of my father last year that as Advent approached, Christmas was, my dad loved Christmas, but it was also a very bittersweet time. I think towards the end of his life, especially because for him, it came around every year and it was an indictment on the decisions that he had made when he was married. Mm you know, because my parents got divorced. So then for my dad, I think the holidays became very, very difficult. And I know that that's what it is for a lot of people. It mm-hmm. comes around and if you've, you know, if you've been through a marriage and your marriage has failed, all of a sudden this idealized time of the year that's supposed to symbolize family and friends and togetherness and a sense of warmth and a sense of nostalgia and a connection with tradition and a connection with a sense of hope but then all it does is just it feels fake because you're stuck in whatever moment you're stuck in mm-hmm. and i think the problem is is or not the problem but the difficulty is how do you move forward and how do you let christmas be born again mm-hmm. in a new way every year And that's the challenging part. And that's, for me, I think, especially as a Catholic, it's why I appreciate the season of Advent so much. So I feel like it does, it tries to help present a framework for you to kind of reset and go, okay, last year was last year. 10 years ago is 10 years ago. This year's this year. That's right. And here's what we got going on. And yes, there's all these great traditions. And yes, there's this wreath. And yes, there's this stuff. And the Macy's, you know, parade's going to, Thanksgiving Day parade's going to happen. And Starbucks is going to change its cups. And we're going to hang holly on the door. And someone's going to play too much Burl Ives and in the cubicle <laughs> next to mine. And I'm going to say, oh, it's not ready yet. It's Advent. We shouldn't be listening to that. And, and it, I think all of it, I think all of it's good. All of it's trying to, point towards this reminder that love has to be incarnated Mm. and if it doesn't that's the problem so i mean ultimately christmas is about celebrating love becoming incarnated Mm. love being enfleshed and the real tension is that so many of us experience the lack of that So why would we celebrate the incarnation of love when for so many of us, love never has been incarnated? Mm -hmm. In fact, it's almost like the opposite happens. Love becomes disembodied and uh, disassociated in a way from our flesh. (laughs) And then all of these sentimental things and nostalgic things they become it's like it's it's like overdosing on Hallmark movies and yeah. candy cane. It's, it's annoying. It yeah. it becomes annoying. Mm-hmm. And then I don't go, oh, it's because love isn't being in probably being in, incarnated. Yeah. Yeah. It's quickly disembodied when our lives are often behind screens. It's interesting. Um about a week ago I was down in Atlanta and I played a song 
at an event and this beautiful 84-year-old woman walks up to me and her husband had just died maybe six months prior. And she said, Jimmy, what is it about beauty? Why does it hurt so much? And I thought, wow, uh, I guess we'll go there. And, uh, and we really talked about how there's a longing for what once was. And for her, that's very much her husband and her family. That's now scattered all over the country. But also the longing for what's not yet and the little glimpse of, of what is to be. And I suppose that is part of why Advent, Christmas, this is always my favorite stretch. Maybe I'm a, a bit of an eternal optimist, but at the end of the day, like I can't live without hope. And um, if there's anything I noticed in the listening to your record just yesterday, there is a constant thread of hope that everybody has a chance at joy and has a chance at love and has a chance at belonging. And uh, of course, we would understand that as Christians belonging, you know, to the heart of God himself. But for people to even recognize that that's possible, that the possibility of, of perfect love even exists, that does something to the soul. It stirs something in the soul. Anyways, I love the record. I'm a bit Celtic in my heritage. I'm guessing you must be. I love how Hark the Herald was arranged. I'm crazy about the opening track. There's just some really epic and then some really beautiful moments. So maybe we can close out with you just briefly telling us a little bit about that creative process where these songs you've been working on on the side for a long, long time and then suddenly it just kind of all came together? Or was this a, a very concentrated and more recent effort right in this album? It's a great question. I think that Chris, making a Christmas record is like one of those things where you are you don't realize it, but you're making it every Christmas. <laughs> so every Christmas came by and I would hear a song or I would hear something and I would go, oh man, I'd love to do something like that at some point. <laughs> or when I do this, I finally do it. So when it finally came time to make a Christmas record... I just said, okay, there's no rules. Here, Here's the thing about Christmas music. Christmas is the one time of year where the whole world sings Christian music. <laughs> That's why there's no, there's no such thing as a war on Christmas. That's I, I'm like, if like, if I'm, if I'm, if, if I'm going to carry a picket sign about anything this Christmas, it's going to be the war. Uh, there is no war. It's fake news because God is, God himself is the holiday. He is the holiday. Never mind that the root of that word is holy day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Happy holidays. (laughs) Happy holidays. So it's the one time of year everyone sings Christian music. Every song usually has the word Christ in it. The phrase Merry Christmas is literally a benediction. Hmm. And you say to someone, Merry Christmas. Or if you say, Happy Holiday, you're basically, you're blessing someone. Yeah. It's a blessing. So that's fantastic. So when I realized, I kind of just took a deep breather and was like, okay, that's none of that stuff's that worth a lick to think about. I just thought, what about this time of year in music has always like created the sense of anticipation or a sense of mystery? So like track one, Gabriel's message, every Christmas for like four years, uh, about four years, I would do a ton of Christmas concerts because I was a band nerd. So we always had Christmas concerts where a concert band, we'd play Leroy Anderson, you know, Sleigh Ride or a Christmas festival and youth orchestra. We would do um, a bunch of different Christmas music. And then there was this Anglican church that was out in the country and the youth orchestra would go there and we would, we would accompany their choir and they would do like a big Christmas program. 
And so, and there was something about that music and that time of year that, you know, even like you take a song like Carol of the Bells, right? That's a Christmas song, but it's creepy as all get out. <laughs> I mean, it's literally the whole thing is like a minor chord. <laughs> the whole song is like a minor chord and then the dominant, like the dominant, like fifth chord of whatever key's center in. So if, you know, if you're doing it in A minor, the whole thing is an A minor chord and then an E major chord. <laughs> and then it goes back to... I mean, you know, I always wonder, like, if you played that for an alien, what would they say? Hey, do you think this is about the birth of the Messiah <laughs> who's going to right every wrong ever in human history? They're like, no. Like, when's the invasion starting? <laughs> so there's a sense of mystery about it and, and an ominous sense. Mm. And I think... Gabriel's message has been this Basque, it's a Basque French carol that's been around for a long time, and it's in a minor key. And once again, the season of Advent is this mixture of hope, and, and it's also a penitential season. So it's a time of simplifying. It's not as hardcore as Lent is, you know what I mean? Where it, but there is an element of fasting before feasting. And there's an element of simplifying, of like peeling back the layers of like, let's get, let's get back in touch with like the deeper stuff we long for, you know, let's get back. What are we hoping for? You know, mm. what, what do we need? Where do we need peace in our life? You know, where do we need joy? You know, who do we need to do a better job of loving? Typically to ask those questions, you got to peel back the layers. So, so like Gabriel's message was about that. It's a bunch of, there's a, there's a bunch of covers on it and how those got chosen. I mean, I could look at each one and almost say there was a bit of a divine appointment about each one. Mm-hmm. The first Noel, the arrangement that I wrote for it, I came up with the day that Steinway delivered a grand piano to my studio for me to record piano on for all the other songs. Mm-hmm. So that one came late in the process. Like that, that came probably in April or May of this year even though I'd started making the record. And that one was literally, I sat down at the piano and started playing that chord progression. And I was like, why does this feel familiar? And then started singing the melody of the first Noel over it. And then, I mean, so that's that. Jingle Bells, I had had this kind of New Orleans meets West Texas swing idea for a song in my head that song separated and turned into the song Little Merry Christmas that's on the record. And But that sort of kind of funky vibe stuck around. Eventually, I was just playing with it one day and started singing the verse to Jingle Bells. Hmm. So that became sort of the, the basis of the arrangement for Jingle Bells. And, you know, the, the recording of it, it's all recorded, that song's all recorded live pretty much at the same time. I think there's like two things that were overdubbed like a, a the four string banjo solo that you hear and i think that's it everything else we just tried first time i've ever had to sing a song in a jazz standard kind of way and play piano at the same time and it was pretty frightening the arrangement of Ocomo come Emmanuel i've had for a couple of years we kind of reimagined it using more of a orchestral or symphonic sound a lot of work honestly went into the the newer songs in the sense of trying to create songs that felt like Christmas. 
which is a lot harder than it sounds because you can't just slap sleigh bells on something and say it's Christmas. <laughs> you have to really dive into, you know, and then there's the whole tension of Advent too. And that's the thing too, like being a Catholic and going like, I can't make a record of just a bunch of Christmas songs. All my Catholic friends are just going to, they're going to tear me to shreds. And I didn't really want to do that anyways, because for me, you know, the reality now is we live in a both end world. We live in a world where the day after Christmas, radio stations are going to start playing Christmas music and it's okay. You don't have, this is not like fasting from the word hallelujah. You know what I mean? It's not like the A police are going to show up at your house. Stop listening to that. And it just defeats the purpose now. And that's what I'm trying to say is that if someone's listening to Christmas music three weeks before Christmas, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Why should Christian, why should anybody tell them don't do that? Mm-hmm. You should just celebrate the fact that they're willing to listen to a song that was somehow inspired by the birth of Jesus. Like, that's a win in my book. Mm-hmm. You know, if someone wants to decorate their house with lights, if someone wants to hang, you know, garland around their house, if someone wants to decorate their tree in the month of June, it's really weird, personally, I think that, (laughs) but more power to them. All of those things are, they're like little encouragements. They're little consolations. Hopefully we will, you know, it's like year after year, we don't stay just there. Hopefully... Every year we try to venture out into deeper waters. That's right. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm trying to think of our songs. Love Came Down to Bethlehem is a newer song on the record. And I actually started writing that one December 16th with a good friend of mine, John Guerra. And he brought this old hymn called Zion's Daughters Weep No More. And it turned into a conversation about let's try to write a real Christmas song where like a Christmas hymn, the first phrase has to be the title of the song. The opening phrase has to be the title of the song. Every Christmas song worth a lick of salt, the first like three or four words you hear, that's the title of the song. Mm-hmm. Away in a manger, the first Noel, O little town in Bethlehem, O come all ye faithful. It came upon a midnight clear. In the Bligman winter, just keep in, going. In the, yeah, literally, it keeps going. I think the tradition for that is actually in the British, in the Church of England, they typically name hymns mm-hmm. based on the first phrase mm-hmm. that you hear. So we started working on a hymn. It was Love Came Down to Bethlehem While the World Was Sleeping. And I was like, well, that's too long of a title. <laughs> so then a while it was going to be Love Came Down. And I was like, no, that's that's not specific enough. Love Came Down to Bethlehem. Mm. That's where it came down. It's cool. It came down to the house of bread, you know? <laughs> and then it became like, like a eight-week, nine-week-long process of texting lyrics back and forth because John lives in Chicago. And we worked really, really hard on the lyric for that one. Um, When I think of Christmas, I'd written with Jason Ingram, same thing in in the month of December. And that was on the secular side. So it was like, I want to write a Christmas hymn. And then I want to try to write like a secular Christmas song that's all about the sense of living in that tension of nostalgia and loss mm. and the longing for something more and the feeling of peace. And yet, you know, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas originally was a really depressing song. <laughs> the original lyrics, it was written in Birmingham, Alabama. I can't remember the name of the writer. I think he wrote it in 1932 or 38. And it was during the war. And No, it was 42. 
And he said, and it was originally, have yourself a merry little Christmas. It might be your last. <laughs> Next year, we might all be living in the past. Wow. That's intense. Yeah. It was like faithful friends who are near to us, gather near to us, no more. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, instead of once more. Dang. And it was like, uh, through the years, we all will be together if the Lord allows. Next year, we'll just have to muddle through somehow. Wow. Wow. And Judy Garland had to sing it for the troops. And she's like, you got to help me out here. Mm. Like she sang it in a movie. And it was like, this is too depressing. Mm. So they changed the bit. And then Frank Sinatra, uh, a couple decades later, decides he's going to record the song. He calls up the writer. He's like, listen, the name of my record is The Joy of Christmas. You got to work with me on the lyrics to this song. <laughs> this is not going to sell The Joy of Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> so have and which is great i think in a way too because it's uh it's the thing i love about christmas ultimately and i was saying this in another interview someone said what advice would you give or what would you say to someone who for them christmas has been it's just one painful mem memory and what i said was find a way to get outside of yourself find a way to connect with other people or something that temporarily it pulls you out of yourself mm. this this season, just for a brief moment, that you could empathize with another person, that you could hear someone else's story, that it would that it would reframe your own, uh, and that it would give you a sense of hope. Because I think ultimately isolation is like the worst thing that you can experience in the holidays. Because I think the point of the holidays is to actually help us feel more connected. And that's the thing. One of the things all about being Catholic is that we always—it's always get, gets to the Christmas season and it's just started. Yeah, Christmas isn't over; it just started. So there's this whole octave that we're going to celebrate, which is why Merry Christmas and Happy New Year were always synonymous. They were connected to each other because it's, hey, this party's going to roll on into the new year, mm. and the, so the most painful thing is that you would end up isolated by yourself. Yeah. So, you know, my prayer for anybody is find a way to connect with other people and mm -hmm. get get outside yourself just for a little bit. I love it. Well, I know the world is uh, really excited about what's happening on Friday this week with this new record dropping. And we'll be rallying in every way we can, our patrons, our listeners, social media, Spotify pre-save, whatever we can do. You can wait, si wait six weeks. Give us, just get, get through <laughs> Halloween. Just don't... <laughs> Get their Halloween or also, you know, the whatever trunk or treat party you're going to yeah. go to. I, I don't know. But, yeah, you can wait a little bit. <laughs> Just maybe save it. Just be like, I'll come back to that in six weeks. Yeah. See, I'm the guy who's listening to Christmas music at least once every three months for all about right, well, half good. a day. You all know, right, so well. I'm, I'm all about it. Well, Matt, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real joy to reconnect, to hear some of the stories behind the album. Uh, so much good and beautiful things to come, and uh, we really appreciate you being a part of the show today. We'll do this again sometime. Thanks for having me. One love brings us together.
have to say I was laughing my tail off uh, by the time we finished recording that podcast. You know, Matt has such a way of going so deep so fast. Uh, usually I've got to pull that out of people. And uh, as you saw, in such a beautiful way, uh, he's, he's a man of incredible depth, uh, of a deep interior life. And it just spills out, not only in the way he writes lyrics, but in the way that he just reflects back on life as a husband, as a father, as somebody sharing in this human experience like so many of us. So really, really cool. Thanks again to Matt for coming and being a part of Love Good. And actually, this is the part where I'm going to make a super exciting announcement. Uh, Matt's Christmas album, as well as a Christmas book, it's actually a children's book, the kind of thing that you put on your coffee table every Christmas season for the rest of your life. It's that beautiful. It's that well-written. It's that well-illustrated. It's amazing. It's called The Advent of Christmas, just like the album. And uh, if you become a patron, you've got literally only a few days. Most people will only know about this deal for about 24 hours, but our podcast listeners are going to get something a little bit closer to 48 hours. If you go to lovegoodculture.com slash Matt, this is going to be a very easy way to become a patron. It's got a built-in coupon code, which will allow you to actually get your very first month free. So you're not only going to immediately get the digital download of Matt Marr's Christmas album, you're going to immediately get a digital download of this incredible new album from the Grey Havens. You're also going to get access to a bunch of archived content and then on December 1st, you'll receive a beautiful, beautiful package. Depending on your level of subscription, that package could include artwork. It could include an ornament. It very likely should include coffee. Our highest level patrons get coffee every three months. So anyways, go check out lovegoodculture.com slash Matt. You're the first people to find out about this. It's an easy way to really try on for size what it is to be a Love Good patron. And uh, I just don't think you'll be disappointed. You're going to get an immediate welcome package as well with a t-shirt and all kinds of amazing things. So we're so pumped to be rallying around Matt Marr, his Christmas album, and as always, so pumped and humbled by the way that you guys rally around this vision of raising your standard for media, of really investing in a community of artists you can believe in, and then really going out and being inspired to build a better culture everywhere you go. Uh, You guys really are uh, the inspiration behind this entire movement. Thank you as always for standing on the front lines. We'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in to season two of the Love Good Podcast. Tell your friends all about us. Stay in touch on social media and be sure to stop by iTunes or Stitcher to give us a review. You can join our movement today by subscribing as a patron at lovegoodculture.com. Start enjoying our seasonal packages that will raise your standard for media and inspire you to build a better culture. We can't wait to accompany you as you change the world.